You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode 53 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. On July 16, 1861, a wave of excitement raced through Washington, D.C. The 35,000-man army that had been gathering in and around the city for the past three months was marching at last, heading westward under Brigadier General Irvin McDowell to attack the main Confederate army in northeastern Virginia. When McDowell's army began its advance, there were actually two Confederate armies in northern Virginia. The main force, roughly 20,000 strong, was commanded by PGT Beauregard. It was protecting the vital rail junction at Manassas, about 30 miles from Washington. And then in the lower Shenandoah Valley, near Winchester, were 11,000 or so Confederates, commanded by Joseph E. Johnston. Johnston's force faced a small Federal army under Robert Patterson. McDowell's plan depended upon Patterson pinning down the rebel force in the Shenandoah to keep them from slipping east to reinforce the Confederates at Manassas. While Patterson immobilized Johnston in the Shenandoah, McDowell would march his army southwest from Washington, scatter or drive back Beauregard's force at Manassas Junction, and then advance on the Confederate capital at Richmond. If everything went as planned, Richmond might be taken by the end of the month, and the war would end. If everything went as planned. As we said last week, at the high-level war council held at the White House on June 29th, Winfield Scott, the old general-in-chief of the Union armies, had said that McDowell's movement against Manassas would begin on July 8th. But as William C. Davis explains in his book, Battle at Bull Run, quote, At the time of his meeting with Scott in the cabinet, McDowell's army of northeastern Virginia numbered a total of 13,666 present for duty. He had 12 pieces of artillery. Within the next several days, more troops were added in a last-minute rush to bulk up McDowell's command as much as possible. More regiments, barely trained, poured across the Potomac, followed by newly arrived colonels who would lead the freshly formed brigades. When July 8th came, however, there was simply no way that McDowell could move. Only on this day could he finally give some formal organization to his army. The fault was not his. He had asked for these new regiments weeks before, but only in the last rush before the campaign did they finally come to him. End quote. Two days passed after the proposed start of the campaign, and still McDowell didn't move. Trying to find the most efficient mode of managing such a large number of troops was proving to be a daunting task, as McDowell had known it would be. 
After all, no one in the army had ever commanded such a large force before. Not even Winfield Scott in Mexico had commanded so many men. On July 10th, McDowell told his commanders that he expected the army would be ready to move out on July 13th, but still he faced problems. McDowell knew that it took time to train new regiments and forge them into an army, but time was something he simply did not have. That's because once the decision to move on Manassas had been made, Abraham Lincoln and Winfield Scott were impatient for the army to advance and gain victories. McDowell later complained, quote, I wanted very much a little time. All of us wanted it. We did not have a bit of it. The answer was, you are green, it is true, but they are green also. You are all green alike, End quote. Although McDowell told his commanders that he expected to move out on July 13th, on that day there was still no advance. And then, as of the 14th, many of the promised troops were still just on their way across the Potomac and entering the army's camps. On the 15th, still the men of the new regiments were arriving, but by that time McDowell could delay no longer. He called another council of his commanders and gave them orders for the army to move out the next day, Tuesday the 16th. McDowell's plan for the movement on Manassas was suitably Napoleonic in that he chose not to keep his army concentrated on a single line of advance, but instead to move forward along several different routes with an eye to creating an opportunity to turn the enemy's position. Also like Napoleon, McDowell anticipated that should the enemy attempt to block his advance by concentrating on one of the Union columns, that column would be strong enough to fend off the attack until the others could come to its assistance. But still, McDowell urged caution upon his subordinates. He instructed them, quote, The three following things will not be pardonable in any commander. First, to come upon a battery or breastwork without knowledge of its position. Second, to be surprised. Third, to fall back. Advanced guards, with vedettes well in front and flankers and vigilance, will guard against the first and second. End quote. Before its advance, McDowell decided to organize his army into five divisions. The first division was assigned to Brigadier General Daniel Tyler. Tyler had graduated from West Point 19 years before McDowell, and he resented being placed under the command of a much younger man. Tyler would be a particularly troublesome subordinate for McDowell. The four brigades in Tyler's division were commanded by Robert Shank, a political general from Ohio, and three West Pointers, Erasmus Keyes, William Tecumseh Sherman, and Israel B. Richardson. McDowell's second division was led by Colonel David Hunter. Hunter had graduated from West Point 16 years before McDowell, and he was highly sensitive to the matter of rank, refusing to accept any assignment he felt was beneath his stature. Hunter's division was composed of two, two brigades, both commanded by West Pointers, Ambrose Burnside and Andrew Porter. McDowell's third division was commanded by a tough old regular by the name of Samuel Heinzelman. One officer described him as, quote, a hearty, fearless, energetic character, end quote. Like Tyler and Hunter, Heinzelman had graduated from West Point over a decade before McDowell, but he would be a loyal subordinate. The three brigades assigned to his division were commanded by William B. Franklin, Orlando B. Wilcox, and Oliver Otis Howard. All three were well-regarded West Pointers. The small 4th Division, whose regiments were not even brigaded, was commanded by a militia general named Runyon. It would serve as a reserve during the campaign. 
and then the 5th Division was commanded by Colonel Dixon S. Miles. Miles was another old regular with a wealth of combat experience in the Mexican War and in the Indian Wars, but by 1861 he had developed a surpassing fondness for the bottle. Miles' two brigades were commanded by Louis Blanker and Thomas A. Davies. When the Army finally marched, eight days behind schedule, the rank and file rejoiced that the much-anticipated offensive was getting underway. This was just the kind of adventure they had signed up for. The Union soldiers had no lack of confidence in themselves and were eager to take the field and whip the rebels. On the eve of the campaign, Charles B. Hayden, a sergeant in Richardson's brigade, wrote in his diary, quote, I, for one, am ready to work and give, if need be, all that I am worth till the last secessionist is dead or subdued. There are very few in the regiment who want to see Michigan till after they have smelled the enemy's power. We are as ready for fighting now as we shall ever be, end quote. But if his soldiers were confident, McDowell still had reservations. He had had no chance to drill and exercise the regiments together in brigade maneuvers, no chance to uncover weaknesses and correct them. McDowell complained, quote, I had no opportunity to test my machinery, to move it around and see whether it would work smoothly or not, end quote. But ready or not, the Federal Army lurched into motion on July 16th and five days later McDowell would finally get the chance to test his machinery, but not on the parade ground, but on the field of battle. Meanwhile, despite Jefferson Davis's defensive policy, Beauregard had at first excitedly formulated some grand plans for an offensive to smash the federal buildup around Washington. But Davis, more grounded in reality, wisely shot down those ideas. And so Beauregard prepared to make his stand along Bull Run, where he meant to meet and repel the Yankees. The stream appeared to be ideally suited for defense. It was like a moat protecting Manassas Junction. As John Hennessy explains in his book, The First Battle of Manassas, An End to Innocence, quote, he had chosen Bull Run as his defensive bastion for the simple reason that crossing the stream would be no easy matter for the Federals, and to get at Manassas the Federals had to cross the stream. Though everywhere shallow, its banks were steep and its bottom soft and mucky. Between the Warrenton Turnpike Stone Bridge on the north and the Orange and Alexandria's Bridge at Union Mills on the south, a distance of eight miles, there were only seven crossings, and of these, only one, Mitchell's Ford, could be considered a major one. At nearly all of them, Beauregard had seen to it that earthworks had been constructed. Each could therefore be defended by a relatively small number of men, allowing the Creole to sp- spread his troops over an expansive front. End quote. Hennessy goes on to point out that despite his defensive preparations along Bull Run, Beauregard had not completely given up on his plans to go on the offensive and smash the Union Army. Beauregard assumed McDowell would go straight for the center of the Confederate line at Mitchell's Ford, where the main road leading from Centerville to Manassas crossed Bull Run, and that was exactly where Beauregard's line would be strongest. He meant for the Federal attack there to be held up just long enough for the rest of the rebel army to deliver a sweeping and dramatic blow to the Federal's flank and rear. When that happened, Beauregard was confident the Yankees would be sent reeling back to Washington. Of course, the success of the plan depended on the enemy doing just what Beauregard expected him to do. 
Although Beauregard planned to make his stand behind Bull Run, he had established several advanced posts beyond the stream, closer to the Federals. Farthest forward was Brigadier General Millage Bonham, who was at Fairfax Courthouse. He had one Virginia and four South Carolina regiments, along with some cavalry and artillery. In his book, Donnybrook, the Battle of Bull Run, 1861, David Detzer describes Bonham, a 47-year-old South Carolinian, this way. Quote, he was rather good-looking, with deep-set eyes, a great mane of hair, and a full beard. Although not a West Point graduate, he had served in the regular army and seen action in both the Seminole and Mexican Wars. He retained a kind of soldierly bearing, but had a brittle temperament. He was courageous in the field, and he could be snippy with his superiors and bullying to his staff, end quote. Bonham had his horsemen continually patrolling the lines of probable approach, and he had standing orders from Beauregard to withdraw from Fairfax Courthouse once the enemy advanced from his camps around Washington. Bonham's force was essentially a tripwire designed to give Beauregard plenty of warning that the Union Army was on the move. Now might be a good time to bring up the celebrated female Confederate spy, Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Greenhow was the widowed mother of four daughters, living in Washington, D.C. when the Civil War broke out. Having been married to a man of substantial wealth and social position, Greenhow had impressive connections with various movers and shakers in the nation's capital. And as events carried the country toward war, she determined to use those connections to gain information to help the Southern cause. An 1863 letter from Beauregard makes clear that prior to the Battle at Manassas, a female spy sent by Greenhow conveyed an important message to the Confederate general about McDowell's plans. Some days later, Greenhouse sent Beauregard a second message, reiterating the contents of the first and providing additional detail. According to Beauregard, Greenhouse's messages played a key role in provoking him to request that the War Department order Johnston and his troops in the Shenandoah Valley to move east and reinforce Manassas. After the federal defeat at Manassas, Greenhow was placed under house arrest, but she still managed to funnel information to the Confederates. Eventually, federal officials tired of this and transferred Rose and her youngest daughter to the old Capitol prison, where they were held for about three months. Then early in June 1862, she was released and exiled to the South, where her supporters greeted her enthusiastically. Not long after that, Rose and her daughter traveled to England and France. In September 1864, she was returning to the South on a blockade runner when the ship ran aground off the coast of North Carolina while trying to evade a Union gunboat. Perhaps fearful of what might happen if she were captured, Rose insisted on leaving the ship and trying to reach the shore in a lifeboat. But the boat overturned in the rough surf, and the substantial amount of gold Rose was carrying on her person weighted her down, and she drowned. Her body washed up on the beach the following day. So that, in a nutshell, is Rose O'Neill Greenhouse's story. And although we appreciate the drama surrounding it, I mean, the whole female spy helping the Southern cause storyline, but still we question just how vital her role really was in July of 1861 with regard to the outcome of the battle at Manassas. Really, it's not as if it was any kind of surprise to the Confederates that McDowell's army was gearing up for an offensive into northeastern Virginia. Everyone and their brother already knew about it. And since Beauregard had advanced a portion of his forces well beyond Bull Run, 
Those positions would have given him plenty of warning that the Federals were on the move. And as for the claim that Greenhouse information spurred him into requesting Johnston move to Manassas, well, Beauregard had already been appealing for Johnston's force to come east from the Shenandoah. So, anyway, make of the story what you will, but like I said, while we appreciate the dramatic appeal of the tale, we aren't convinced Rose Greenhouse's role was really all that vital to what happened at Manassas. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When the Union Army finally began its much-anticipated offensive, McDowell's first objective was to bag the Confederate force at Fairfax Courthouse. Three important roads came together there, and as we said before, Beauregard had established an advanced post at the place. If things worked out as McDowell planned, the rebels at Fairfax Courthouse would be trapped by three federal columns, Tyler to their rear, Hunter to their front, and Miles advancing from the south. The Confederate force under Bonham would then be smashed or captured, and McDowell would have himself a nice beginning to his campaign. Tuesday, July 16th, was miserably hot and humid, but the Federal Army's first day's march nevertheless saw all of McDowell's divisions reach their assigned destinations. Burnside's brigade of Hunter's division even had the privilege of forming up for the march right on Pennsylvania Avenue, and thus got to revel in the enthusiastic cheers of the people of Washington as it set off for the Long Bridge over the Potomac. While all of McDowell's divisions reached their destinations on the 16th, that was probably only because it had been a fairly short march. McDowell had set relatively conservative marching orders for his raw troops. But still, the heat and humidity took its toll. One of Hunter's soldiers later recalled, quote, The heat and dust soon began to tell upon the men, not yet hardened for such a march, and many were obliged to fall out of the ranks, end quote. That evening, the Green Union soldiers experienced their first night in the field while on campaign. One soldier from Wisconsin recalled years later that, quote, Soon after midnight, I awoke with a strange sensation. There was the moon at the zenith in full splendor. 
Of the 12,000 soldiers, apparently not another soul was awake. The silence was impressive. What thoughts flitted through the boy's mind out there on the sacred soil of old Virginia, a thousand miles from home, surrounded by scenes and circumstances so new and strange? End quote. The next day, Wednesday, July 17th, was the day the advancing Federal Army was supposed to seize Fairfax Courthouse and bag the Confederates posted there. Ethan Rafuse, in his book A Single Grand Victory, writes that, quote, Early on the 17th, McDowell's men were roused from their sleep and directed to get in line for their march. Despite the relatively modest march of the previous day, most of the men awoke feeling stiff, sore, and possessed by a general sense of exhaustion. Nonetheless, their officers managed to get the men moving out at a fairly decent hour toward their respective objectives for the day. With the excitement of the first day's march behind them, however, discipline, which was not good to begin with, began to deteriorate. End quote. It was another brutally hot and humid day, and one of the biggest problems for march discipline turned out to be, as funny as it sounds, blackberries. It seems as if every account of this march that you read mentions the abundant blackberries growing in the countryside of northeastern Virginia. One soldier wrote, quote, I never saw blackberries more plenty. We stopped and ate what we wanted and then moved on. This march partook more of the character of a pleasant ramble than that of an armed force looking for an enemy, end quote. Men constantly fell out of the hot and dusty line of march to pick the juicy berries or to fill their canteens with water. McDowell later complained, quote, They would not keep in the ranks. Order as much as you pleased. They stopped every moment to pick blackberries or to get water, end quote. Such conduct infuriated Colonel William Tecumseh Sherman, commanding a brigade in Tyler's division. He grumbled that, quote, The march demonstrated little save the general laxity of discipline. For all my personal efforts, I could not prevent the men from straggling for water, blackberries, or anything on the way they fancied, end quote. By mid-morning on the 17th, despite the breakdown of discipline, McDowell's plan to bag the rebels at Fairfax Courthouse was being implemented, but it was being implemented very slowly. McDowell's subordinates, fearful of being ambushed and mindful of their standing orders not to be surprised by stumbling upon a Confederate defensive position, McDowell's subordinates advanced toward Fairfax Courthouse with excessive caution. As a result, Bonham was able to successfully extricate his men from McDowell's trap, but it seems Bonham almost waited too long to fall back, and his men weren't at all impressed with the frenzied way in which he handled the withdrawal. One said, quote, General Bonham all the time seemed very much flustered. After moving his troops around and making demonstrations as if for a fight, he ordered a retreat, which ought to have been done before the enemy was so close. A retreat, no doubt, appeared more like a rout than a retreat in good order. End quote. And then prior to the Union Army's advance, Beauregard had also moved two other brigades into forward positions just beyond Bull Run. But once McDowell's army rolled forward, Beauregard ordered those advance formations to fall back behind the stream. And so by daylight on the 18th, all of Beauregard's men were safely behind Bull Run. No sooner had the Federal soldiers occupied Fairfax Courthouse and another smaller settlement, Germantown, than some of them began to loot and pillage. Although the depredations apparently didn't involve attacks on civilians, homes were ransacked and buildings were set on fire. McDowell was outraged at his men's behavior. The following day, he responded to the incident by issuing an angry order stating, quote, 
It is with the deepest mortification that the general commanding finds it necessary to reiterate his orders for the preservation of the property of the inhabitants. Hardly had we arrived at this place, when to the horror of every right-minded person, several homes were broken open and others were in flames. End quote. Well, McDowell's outrage notwithstanding, the looting and pillaging in Fairfax Courthouse and the burning of Germantown were but the first taste of an ugly reality that would only grow worse the longer the war lasted. On July 17th, Beauregard sent a message to Jefferson Davis saying, quote, The enemy has assailed my outpost in heavy force. I have fallen back on the line of Bull Run. If his force is overwhelming, I shall retire to the Rappahannock. Send any reinforcements at the earliest possible instant and by every possible means. End quote. Davis knew that Beauregard's force alone was not strong enough to repel the Federal advance, so orders went out to Johnston stating, quote, Beauregard is attacked. To strike the enemy a decisive blow, a junction of all your effective force will be needed. If practicable, make the movement. End quote. Johnston was being told that, if he could, he was to slip away from the Shenandoah Valley and bring his command east to reinforce Beauregard at Manassas. As we talked about in the last episode, preventing Johnston from doing precisely that was the mission of a small federal army commanded by Robert Patterson. At a meeting in Washington on July 13th, when Winfield Scott stated his confident assurance that McDowell's greater numbers would prevail against the Confederates at Manassas, Daniel Tyler, one of McDowell's division commanders, had asked, Suppose Joe Johnston should reinforce Beauregard. What result should you expect then, General? To that, Scott replied, Patterson will take care of Joe Johnston. But Patterson would not, in fact, take care of Joe Johnston. Keeping the Confederate force in the Shenandoah Valley pinned down was just the job for an energetic and aggressive federal commander, but that was not Patterson. Part of the fault for his failure was not his. His subordinates counseled caution, and he was handicapped by the looming expiration of the enlistments of his three-month volunteers. But still, Patterson's efforts on July 16th and 17th to press forward and pin down Johnston were cautious and ineffectual. And so when Johnston received word after midnight on the 17th that if he was able to, he was to slip away and join Beauregard at Manassas, he promptly sent out Jeb Stewart's cavalry to screen his withdrawal. By 9 a.m. on the morning of the 18th, Johnston had his force, about 10,000 strong, ready to go. Johnston's command was organized into five infantry brigades and one regiment of cavalry. The cavalry was Stewart's 1st Virginia, of course. As for the infantry, Colonel Thomas Jackson, wearing his old blue regular army uniform, commanded the All-Virginia 1st Brigade. Colonel Francis Bartow, a handsome politician from Georgia who lacked any formal military training, commanded the 2nd Brigade. The 3rd Brigade was led by Brigadier General Bernard B. of South Carolina, an 1834 graduate of West Point who had seen service in the Mexican War. Leading the 4th Brigade was Colonel Arnold Elsey. He was a native of Maryland and a West Point graduate who had seen action in both the Mexican and Seminole Wars. The 5th Brigade, organized just a week before, was commanded by Brigadier General Edmund Kirby Smith, a young and able West Pointer from Florida. Johnston planned for his army to march away from Patterson, exit the Shenandoah Valley by way of Ashby's Gap, 
and then finally reach Piedmont Station on the Manassas Gap Railroad. From Piedmont Station, trains would carry the men the remaining 34 miles to Manassas Junction. And despite Beauregard's later attempt to grab credit for the idea of using the railroad, it really was Johnston's idea. But anyway, leading the way would be Jackson's brigade. Not surprisingly, he would push his men hard on the hot and dusty march up and out of the valley and toward Piedmont Station. In the meantime, Beauregard had wired Johnston on the 17th, and this was actually before Johnston received the message from Richmond. But Beauregard had excitedly wired Johnston on the 17th, saying, War Department has ordered you to join me. Do so immediately if possible, and we will crush the enemy. Beauregard had immediately concocted a plan that assumed Johnston would march by road the entire way from the Shenandoah, and then would arrive on McDowell's right flank. As John Hennessy tells it, quote, by Beauregard's calculations, Johnston would arrive on McDowell's right. McDowell certainly would be so impressed by Johnston's attack that he would not know what to think of it. Beauregard reckoned that McDowell would reflexively wheel his army to face Johnston squarely. At that, Beauregard's brigades would sweep forward across Bull Run and assail the hapless Federal's, Federal generals left and rear. The outcome, Jubal early recorded Beauregard as saying, could not be doubted. It would be a complete rout, a perfect Waterloo, end quote. But like Beauregard's other grandiose plans, this one also assumed that everyone else, in this case, Johnston and McDowell, would do exactly as he expected them to do. And that seems like a good point to start to wrap up this episode. So we have the Federal Army rolling forward, Beauregard has pulled his men back behind Bull Run, and Joe Johnston's force is starting to slip away from the Shenandoah and make its way toward Manassas. Next time, we'll cover the affair at Blackburn's Ford and then get started in on the Battle of First Manassas itself. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Donnybrook, The Battle of Bull Run, 1861, by David Detzer. With Donnybrook, uh, Detzer has crafted an easily readable narrative of the first great battle of the war. Besides covering the action, he does a great job of helpfully explaining a lot of the military terms and whatnot that a lot of people may not be familiar with. And all in all, Donnybrook is a very readable account, especially for someone who may not be all that familiar with the battle or its background. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the Podcast Information Nexus, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And at the website, you can also find links to our Facebook page and Twitter account, so don't forget to check those out. And we wanted to say thank you to everyone who is still leaving us those great five-star reviews on iTunes. Uh, please know that those always put a smile on our faces when we read them. And then a big thank you goes out to Mark G. and Doug S. for their donations this past week. Um, that support and encouragement means a lot. So thanks, guys. And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.